just devastated her. She never worked again. And the sad thing is she died not knowing she was correct. And she never loved her being correct. That was Myra Phillip talking about her late mother, Mary, who never got to know her name would be cleared in the post office fraud miscarriage of justice, currently gripping the public imagination and rightly putting senior figures under renewed scrutiny. We'll hear more from Myra in our featured interview on the scandal of the wrongful post office convictions shortly. Welcome to the Stushi, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip, and on this episode, I'm joined by Alistair Clark. Justin Bowie and Adele Merson for our first episode of 2024. It's a year already shaping up to be a long general election campaign, which Rishi Sunak is clearly hoping to sort of wish away. We'll spare you a heap of party political name calling and premature sloganeering today, though, because we would like to look at some of the big stories that have kept us busy since I ran away with the gold medal in our end of year politics quiz, which of course you can all listen back to. The year has started with an overnight sensation which was years in the making, the post office fraud miscarriage of justice, which is now the subject of an ITV drama, has been utterly astounding in its scale. Thousands caught up in this travesty, and luckily Alistair Clark is here to help us make sense of it after speaking to Pfeiffer Myra Phillip, who has suffered along with many more. Can you sort us out with a, a quick recap then on how we got to where we are? Because it's been a long, long, long saga. Yeah, like you say, this this story has been rumbling on for for more than a decade now. But obviously in the last couple of weeks, it's really captured public attention with the ITV drama, which which focuses on the campaigner's fight against the post office and the campaigner's fight to get justice. Essentially what happened was money, which which never existed, was was said to have gone missing from post offices. Sub-postmasters, the people who, who run post offices, they are contractually obliged to meet any shortfall. Um, they were some of them, hundreds of them, were were prosecuted for for thefts, for fraud, um, for this missing money, and we're not talking about you know twenty pounds, thirty pounds. We're talking about, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of pounds. Um, but as it turned out, that that money never existed, and and it was a computer glitch, a computer system error, um, which had already been identified. The post office um, had powers in England and Wales to prosecute people. In Scotland, it was the, it was the Crown Office, and 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 in Scotland, we think around a hundred people were prosecuted for mm. these um, supposed crimes, um, and and a number of them have been have been cleared, and it will go down as one of the sort of great miscarriages of justice, and in a mm. system that something that the UK likes to tout as one of the best in the world. Um, so it's quite a, a shameful episode, and it will be one of those things I think in in British history that we we look on um, with quite a lot of regret. Speaking to Myra just yesterday, things have already moved on a little, um, and they'll continue to move on at pace. I think now we'll continue to cover the updates in print and online, um, and revisit them. I'm very sure in, in future episodes of the Stushi. Uh, there was an urgent question at Holyrood uh, this week with a hint towards a pardon scheme and former post office boss Paula Venels is a great handbacker, CBE. Um, Myra began the interview by telling Alistair how her mother, Mary, got into the post office in the first place in what they thought was going to be a fantastic role in the community. My mother started out her career as a policewoman. She went through various transformations during her life. She was an interflora florist at one point. She was a prize-winning flower arranger. She went and re-educated herself several times through college courses. Um, 
And then when she was in her 60s, she'd given up the flower shop and she was extremely bored. I thought I was getting made redundant and I was going to get a huge redundancy payout. So we decided to buy the post office in Ochtermachty in 2001. Um, the benefits were twofold. It gave her something to do and gave her a lot of public contact because it is a it is a sort of nice centre of the community type job. And it genuinely probably would have been my retirement um, sort of prospect as well. And it was quite quickly after the post office, uh, you took over the post office, that, that this problem started, wasn't it? It was 2002, is that right? Uh, no, it, we took over in September 2001 and before 2001 was even over, uh, we were ex, you know, experiencing cash shortfalls. Because we were new, we thought maybe, okay, we're maybe pressing the wrong buttons. It was a complicated system. Um, we had people over from head office, I think it was either Hamilton or Glasgow, they always came from, uh, for the odd day here and there. Strangely, nothing ever went wrong when they were there. And the shortfalls just kept on going and kept on going. And it became obvious it was a horizon problem. And explain to somebody who maybe isn't so familiar with the story exactly what the issue was with horizon and with the, the discrepancies that it reported. Right, so, so basically every Wednesday night you would do a weekly... We called it a tally. It was like running all your accounts. It was like a stock take. You'd have to count all your stamps. You'd have to count all your uh, postal orders. You'd have to count all your road tax discs. Um, laterally, you'd have to count the lottery tickets because the post office took over the sale of the lottery scratch cards. Um, so it was like every week you were doing a big stock take and then you were balancing the books for what went out and what was still there and what had come in. And I would say eight times out of ten, there was a massive discrepancy. Um, I say massive, sometimes it was sort of 20 quid, sometimes it was 200 quid, and sometimes it was 2,000 pounds. And it, it, it rapidly became obvious that it was the system, it was nothing we were doing wrong. Um, because Horizon was so new, we still had the old paperwork that you physically filled in before it became computerised, and... On several occasions, we we did the same, the same exercise on paper, and there wasn't a problem, but there certainly was one in the system. But the officials from the post office weren't weren't for accepting that, were they? They 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 plundered on thinking this this was your fault. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're now looking at about three and a half thousand people who were affected, with those who've just come forward since the the drama uh, at the beginning of the year. Um, and every single one of us was told, no, 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 it's, just, it's you, it's your fault, you're the only one, it's not happening to anybody else, how could it possibly be the system? And in the end, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't 20 quid that your mum was accused of, of, of stealing, was it? It was, it was 70,000, so a lot of money. Right, so the accusation actually wasn't 70,000, that is the amount of our own money that we put in. Um. So when you had a shortfall, you were liable for it because of the contract you'd signed. So we sort of, um, I mean, I, I was still working. I didn't get made redundant. I would put money in. The shop that was associated with the post office would put money in. Um, savings started to get used. Loans started to be taken out. At the latter end, when we got raided, and it was just like it was on the TV, dramatisation, the big black cars, the people in suits turning up, shutting you down, locking you out doing an audit, 
there was a night, the, the night before, they did it on a Thursday morning, the day after the the tally, um, and the night before there had been a shortfall, and you'd run it again and again and again and, and try and get it to sort itself out. And I think it was like a 2 a.m. finish. And so my mother had written a personal cheque for £95 and stuck it in the cash drawer in lieu of taking the money out the next day. Um, and that was what got her suspended. That was, according to them, the false accounting. And it, it just seems it was so honest to do it. Um, but if she hadn't put that cheque in the drawer, I don't know what would have happened. And there was some pretty, you know, terrible accusations from the post office, wasn't there? It wasn't just about your mum or, or yourself, but, you know, even, even grandchildren and things like that that were suggested to yeah. be at fault for this. That's right. I mean, throughout the process, as I say, we, we would sort of demand that they came over and take a look for themselves and, you know, check it out and all the rest of it. And um, the suggestions just got more and more bizarre, you know. It was like... Uh, Oh, you've got teenage grandchildren living on the premises because we, we lived up above in the, the house above. Um, you know, uh, are you sure they're not accessing the, the post office counter through the night and stealing money out of the safe? Now, there were alarm systems. I mean, it was like a bank. It was like a fortress. There were various alarm systems. There was about four or five sets of keys to get in. Then there were the safe keys. Then there was an alarm on the safe. Um, but this was their suggestion. Look closer to home, um. You know, it could, it could, it could be like my teenage children. Um. I mean, the result of that was, uh, and you, you, we must have just all taken it all to heart. It was horrible. It was, you were in fear all the time. Um. I, I would actually sleep with the keys under my pillow. Um. Until it just got to the point where I was like, no, I still had my original home, so we moved out. We moved out and. You know, I, I would go in and do the newspaper rounds at half five, six o'clock in the morning. So it gave me an extra hour on my day. Um, but uh, that's what I did. And, you know, for anyone to be accused of fraud or theft is a, is a horrible thing. But, you know, you, your mum was a policewoman and then had this big position of trust in the community. I think at the time you were working as a journalist, both positions which require trust and integrity. Um, that must have been... Um, you know, especially upsetting for, for, for someone who had been a police officer for the, then to take on this position of trust. I mean, it must have been devastating for your mum to be accused of these things. It was particularly devastating for my mother. I mean, you know, whilst I sort of like did the early morning shift and I would go in and, and do stuff after after my other job, um, she was the one that was there and she was the one that was, she was the face of our post office. You know, she was the one that dealt with dealt with all the people um, and, and you know, they, people come to trust the postmaster. Um, and in those days we had sort of like no internet, no social media and, you know, my mother was a very intelligent woman so she was always well informed about things and um, so yeah, so you know, she, she had a rapport with, with her public kind of thing. Um, I mean, add to that the fact she'd been brought up by a Victorian father whose kind of attitude in life, you know, if she was number two in her class at school in an exam, she'd go home all excited and tell him, and he'd straight-facedly say to her, all right, okay, so why weren't you number one? Uh, and so she she was brought up to be the best and to be to be proud, I suppose, as well. And, yeah, she was, she was very, very, very honest. And to be accused of something like that, especially when you've been questioning 
you know, the, the computer system and you're convinced there's something wrong and you know it's not you, just devastated her. She never worked again. She'd have a few tears when you mentioned it, you know, going on through her life. And and the sad thing is she died not knowing she was correct and she'd have loved to have been correct. <laughs> yeah, and obviously your mum passed away in, in 2018. Um, with this all coming up again, it, it must be it must be good that people now recognise that, that this was not these people's fault. But for you, it must be sort of bittersweet because your mum never had her name cleared when she was alive and never never got to know that her name would be cleared. Yeah, it is. But um, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a firm believer in that, you know, your lost loved ones do kind of look down on you. And um, I'm sure whatever she is, she'll know. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, you you said obviously that that the family as a whole put this seventy thousand pounds back into the post office. Have you received any of that back? Um, tell us a little bit about you know what what processes are underway for you to get redress for that money. Okay, so first of all, I applied. Um, I applied late because. Well, the post office claims that because my mother was dead, she didn't get the letter, um, which I don't believe. I don't believe they sent it. Um, so when I actually cottoned onto the scheme, and it was during the COVID days, so nobody was, you know, not, not, nobody was really aware of what was going on. We were all glued to the TV and everything. I never saw it on the telly. Um, anyway, so I applied late. So six months down the line, they sent me an email telling me that I couldn't apply because I was time barred. Um, so that's kind of why I came out the woodwork and started campaigning. Um, and uh, I had to appear at the uh, official inquiry in Glasgow, which then in turn sorted that out. Uh, and now the, the schemes are open-ended. And in fact, I think over 100 people have joined in the, in the last week asking for compensation. People who before were frightened because of the way post office treated them in the past and so four years down the line uh, I was made an offer in October which was nowhere near what was claimed um, and only offered £8,000 for damage to reputation for example um, the 70000 we put in they offered 40 of that back and some of the other sort of heads of claim uh, like for the property that we were forced to sell because we couldn't pay the mortgage and all the rest of it were just ridiculously low. So I'm now in what's called dispute resolution with the post office and the lawyers uh, tell me that's going to take at least another year. And I think since the ITV drama, ministers seem to be um, acting with more urgency. I think there's a lot more public pressure around this. Um, there was a statement last night and, and some, some work this morning around working with judges to make sure these convictions which are upheld um, are, are overturned as soon as possible. Um, for your mum, obviously, as well, would, what would you like to see happen now? What do you think the government should be doing to get um, accountability for for your mum, for, for anyone else that was affected by this? Well, there are several things. Um, obviously, the overturning of the convictions is going to be in England and Wales uh, with the Westminster uh, powers down there. Um, justice has devolved in Scotland. The actual convictions in Scotland, and there were 79 of them, all involved the Crown Office. You know, so whereas down south, the post office had 
um, Crown powers to do their own uh, prosecutions. Up here, they had to involve the Fiscal and the Crown Office. And I'm told, uh, I actually just got told this morning, that um, the Scottish justice system has more of a power to just sweep all these convictions away and pardon all these people than they do in England. It's not going to take an act of Parliament. Yes, yeah, so whilst in uh, England and Wales, it's going to take an act of Parliament to quash all these convictions all at once. Apparently, we don't need one in Scotland. Apparently, the government and the Crown Office or whoever, uh, what the, you know, I don't know what the technical details are of it, um, can just turn around and say, right, you're all pardoned. So it could happen faster in Scotland if there was a political will. And, um, I mean, I don't think in the last four years I've heard the post office scandal mentioned once in the Scottish Parliament. But it was yesterday and I'm told it will be again this afternoon. There's obviously been a lot of discussion around the former chief executive of the, the post office, Paula Venels. She was actually shortlisted to become Bishop of London. Um, she was an Anglican minister. She she no longer is. She gave up that position. Um, there's been quite a lot of, of public outcry around her CBE that she was given for services to the post office. Do you agree with that? Do you think that should be removed from her? Um, I do believe that should be removed from her. But I also have to say, when all this happened to me and my mother, she wasn't there. So I'm afraid there are some other figureheads of the post office going back in time that should should be looked at as well. Um, she clearly inherited this culture of evil towards its employees. Um, however, she then went on to deliberately try to cover it up and she deliberately lied. Um, and she certainly shouldn't have been given an honour for doing any of that. And obviously, you know, the, the post office is ultimately publicly owned. Um, it's not run by the government, but, you know, ministers are ultimately accountable for it. Um, the Liberal Democrat leader today is Ed Davey. Um, once upon a time, he was Minister for the Post Office. There's been calls for him to take some accountability for this situation as well. So this goes back, you know, decades. And, and there's a lot of people who, who are still active in public life, maybe in slightly different roles, but who should maybe take some accountability for this. I think there are an awful lot of people who've been in public roles, and I think it's just about affected every single political party. Um, I mean, Ed Davey, he actually uh, worked for one of the legal firms that was involved in prosecuting Postmasters. And that same legal firm is now overseeing the historical shortfall scheme. I mean, their name appears in my, my offer, um, for example. Um, but, you know, some people blame Tony Blair, some people... Uh, there's been successive prime ministers... And I don't think you can blame any one single one single party or one single person. So what I'd love to see is just everybody, you know, getting together in a cross-party huge initiative to get all of this done and dusted and to give everyone peace. That was Myra Philip, whose mum, Mary, went through the terrible experience in the Horizon scandal at the post office. So what, what developments can we expect next, Alistair? So since you spoke to Myra, Paula Venos has handed back her CBE. Um, the, the Scottish government has announced that it is looking into a pardon scheme, but wants action from Westminster to to around the, the compensation scheme. 
we're expecting things to move quite quickly. There is a lot of pressure on ministers from the public to mm. to deal with this and and to 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 give justice to to those that were affected. And so I, I think things will move quite quickly. I think we'll see some progress. The, the one thing that that remains unanswered is is like Myra pointed out in England and Wales, these cases were prosecuted by the the post office in Scotland. They were they were prosecuted by the Crown Office, who who prosecute. Um, you know every type of crime, whether whether it's theft or murder, or you know these offences, and 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 so far there maybe hasn't been the the sort of political scrutiny of the the crown office's role in that and the role the Scottish government could play, and I think that will be something over the next week or so that that grows in intensity. Kumza Yousaf, the first minister, was obviously justice minister at one point. MSPs mm. in Parliament yesterday were raising the fact that that during his time as Justice Minister, he didn't have a single meeting about about the scandal. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, there's a whole host of predecessors of his as well. So, so I think the scrutiny on the, the Scottish Government will be the next thing that we can expect to see. Well, the, the Justice Secretary had something to say on it yesterday, which we can catch up a little bit with a clip here. Anyone wrongly convicted as a result of the Horizon scandal should have their conviction reversed and be entitled to compensation. The Scottish Criminal Cases Review Commission have already referred seven cases back to the Appeal Court for a fresh appeal, and two of these have had their convictions overturned on appeal so far. We are, however, looking at what more can be done. We are looking at the idea of a pardon scheme. But I am conscious that the UK government have made, of, uh, the UK government have made um, a, a compensation scheme that requires a conviction uh, to be reversed by an appeal court. And that's a requirement before you can uh, be in receipt of compensation. I have therefore today written to the UK Secretary of State for Justice to ask for a meeting to discuss how best uh, we can work together and ensure that anyone wrongly convicted as a result of the Horizon scandal can have their conviction reversed and still be entitled to compensation. OK, now it's time to have a look at some of the other Scottish politics stories beyond the Holyrood bubble and how they affect the communities we live in. Adele Merson and Justin Bowie, who've been listening patiently so far, you, you had uh, some time off over Christmas and New Year, not that much, and you're back straight into it. Adele, um, you in particular, a pretty significant development just the day before this recording uh, with uh, the collapse of house builder Stuart Milne um, in a, a long fixture in Aberdeen and across the whole country uh, and in England as well. What, what's what's happening there and um, how are politicians reacting to the, the scale of this, this this problem? We learned this week that the Stuart Milne Group, as you say, is, is collapsing. That's nearly 50 years after Stuart Milne founded the company. He's probably one of the city's, arguably the city's best kind of well-known self-made businessmen. And basically what happened was he wanted to retire. He's in his 70s now. He kind of put that on hold about a year I think uh, so the mini budget happened mm. and he thought you know he put that on hold but in the summer things were looking a little bit better and that went ahead they tried to get that to happen but it emerged this week that basically the Stuart Milne group received two takeover bids one of them is supposedly from Stuart Milne and they say there was significant interest but their bank did not 
accept either of the bids and withdrew mm. funding. I think we, we, we have a piece up today that's sort of more of a deeper dive looking at things from the bank's point of view. They were sort of saying that market prospects weren't as rosy as they were in the post-pandemic phase where you saw a lot of people buying property and obviously well-documented pressures with cost of living and higher interest rates have just made things really tough. Uh, and the bank, one of a source told one of our business reporters that two offers came, but they were just too late in the day to be a viable option. Yeah. So this week in Parliament, we heard from MSPs, uh, you know, mainly from the northeast because it's it's a northeast house builder, but they do have uh, housing developments across Scotland. They were raising some of the kind of knock-on impacts that will come from this. So you've got two hundred and seventeen people that are going to lose their jobs, but you've also got knock-on impacts with sort of contractors who are self-employed tradespeople who are are working on these housing developments and they're now going to find themselves out of pocket and, and perhaps sort of scrabbling, looking at, you know, their own staffing pressures. And a, another kind of consequence of all this is you've got homeowners who, I guess there's, there's two different types. You've got people that have reserved a house who now don't know what's going to happen to they might have put you know their, their life savings in for a deposit and then you've got people who have already got into their homes but they're perhaps living in an area where it's mid construction and you've got I know we spoke to one guy who whose garden for example isn't there yet so he's in the house but he doesn't have a garden that the road isn't completed so I think it's just not to mention there's fears of a sort of domino effect happening happening yeah. here and and other house, house building companies will be looking on i guess anxiously about whether this is something that that could have wider ramifications it's, yeah yeah quite depressing news really yeah and it, and it's that thing where there's the the fear of the contagion i mean you you mentioned all the different housing developments that are around the country there's 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 a stuart mill development up the road from me um and it's not quite finished the, the roads aren't done and some of the houses aren't finished and like your example there some of the gardens aren't done a lot of landscaping and all the other things to be done um, and and i i would very much doubt that i'm alone in that um there'll be communities all over scotland that have got very similar projects at that stage the the usual kind of government support they call it the, the pace team which is there to sort of help people who are uh, facing redundancy there's a lot of uh, kind of comforting words from the government on how they're they're there they're trying to offer support but when when you look at something on this scale what can they do other than sort of just help point people to other forms of employment the, the, i think the scale of it was kind of underlined a little yesterday when they started talking about apprentices as well there's a lot of people who are just starting in trades and if a house builder this big goes under then yeah there'll be um there'll be worries uh, down the line so that will be something that we very much carry on uh, covering in the days ahead. And as you pointed out, Adele, the, the business team at the P&J are all over this one. There's a very good piece up to what went wrong uh, behind the scenes here. Justin, moving on a little bit from that, we mentioned this at the very start of the episode and it, it was kind of the direction of travel and, you know, just after New Year, it was going to be all about campaigning, all about elections. Hasn't really turned out that way, maybe because there's no date in the diary yet. Rishi Sunak still really appears desperate to try and push it as far away as possible you went to for an audience with uh, the first minister on monday i think he wanted to make it all about independence and the economy but of course 
the election um, starting gun was fired just before he had a chance to speak. So what was what did you get from Hamza Yousaf's first set piece speech and Q&A of the year? Well, as is often the case, what the First Minister wanted Monday to be about was perhaps not what Monday ended up being about. Mm. The First Minister wants to focus on independence and the economy as we gear up to this next election. But one topic in particular that um, it's become a bit of a thorn in the government's side and is becoming a tricky issue for them is the topic of the XL bully dogs. Now, the UK government in England has obviously put in place a ban on breeding these dogs. You can still own them, but they have to be neutered and muzzled and you can't breed them. So some people have been sending their dogs north to Scotland, in particular to you know the Aberdeenshire region, to Aberdeen, um, to Dundee as well. One woman there wants to set up a sanctuary for them. And there's obviously a lot of concerns over these dogs being dangerous, being behind fatal and um, uh, harmful attacks on people. And the Scottish government argues that its current laws are quite stringent. There's a Dangerous Dogs Act in place. They argue that it's enough. But clearly, Scotland is becoming a bit, or is becoming perceived to be a bit of a safe haven for these dogs. That's an expression that the First Minister used on Monday. Um, when I questioned him on it, and it's a phrase that was used yesterday um, in the Scottish Parliament. So essentially now the government are reviewing their policies and seem to be perhaps edging towards maybe reviewing their guidelines, maybe following what the UK government have done. And there's clearly a lot of concern within the government that even if they believe their current laws are strict enough, if there is a dog that is behind a harmful or dangerous attack, and it turns out it's a dog that's come up from England because the Scottish laws have been perceived as being you know, less stringent on dogs, that is going to reflect very, very badly on the government. Mm. So it will be interesting to see what happens in the days to come, but it kind of shows that you know, when the government want to focus on these bigger issues in terms of you know, independence, and on Monday there was a lot of chat around industrial policy. You know, we, we, we talk about policy, but there's almost these grander, wider, political, theoretical almost discussions about how Scotland's future could look, but you know the most immediate focus of a, a lot of people yeah. right now is about you know a dangerous dog breed, which is it's very different, but it does point to issues of justice and devolution and, and how all that works. So it will be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, it does seem that the government is a bit petrified about um, the current loophole and a bit of the gap between the laws in England and Scotland, and that uh, you would not want to be the justice secretary if something were to happen uh, to uh, someone's pet or child or anybody out in the street um you know the, we're basically just waiting for an attack to happen and then that's it you know the government will be in a lot of trouble speaking to people in parliament just the day before we were recording this it was quite clear that they are a bit nervous about the 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 ongoing um difference between england and scotland but they publicly at least keep saying that they were a bit blindsided by what the the uk government did they just there was no warning and then the ban came in quite quickly but you know, time is ticking. So we do expect something soon on that one. Alistair, apart from the, the post office scandal, which is obviously a huge deal, what's been grabbing your attention in recent days that you think more people should know about? Well, I think uh, one of the most interesting stories in recent days was the revelations that Peter Murrow, uh, Nicola Sturgeon's husband and, and former chief executive of the, the SNP, made two loans of, of £7,500 to the SNP in 2018. But those were actually only reported to the Electoral Commission last year. They, they should have been reported in the same year. Mm. Um, I think this is obviously long time 
friends of the podcast will be familiar with this story. It's rumbled on for a long time now. The closer it gets to an election, the more dangerous this becomes for the SNP. You know, these these constant, um, you know, concerns about the SNP's management of its finances, you know, potential legal issues for the former First Minister, her husband and the, and the party treasurer. I don't think anyone in the SNP wants to imagine what would happen if these things keep sort of tumbling out over the next six months. Um, I think it would it would really dent confidence in the party. And it's one of those unknowns um, as we go into the election um, that the SNP just can't prepare for. Yeah, absolutely. Watch the space on that one. Okay, that's it for this week. Thanks to Myra Phillip for speaking to us about her experience and her mother's, and to Alistair Clark, Adele Merson, and Justin Bowie, along with producer Morvin McIntyre. We'll be back next week for more. Until then, pick up a paper or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, Sunday Post, and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed. <laughs>